Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and each week we celebrate and commiserate with bestselling authors, experts like today, and moms around the world. Hi, everyone. Today we're talking screen time. It's a big topic for parents. You know, I turn on the television, and I'm like, ooh, should I be watching this instead of watching my kids? Just kidding. I'll turn it on for them, and I'll be like, oh, should they be watching this? And the answer is usually yes, because I have stuff to get done. But how much is too much, and am I scrambling her brain, and then I'll be on my phone late at night, and I'm like, oh, should I be doing this? There's a lot of ambivalence around screen time. So I brought on an expert. She's like my age, um, and she's done a lot of stuff. And she's actually really fun, and I kind of want to move to Brooklyn now and be her friend, and we can hang out with both of our sets of daughters, and her husband's named Adam. Oh, yeah. She has a husband named Adam, too. Apparently, to be a guest on Atomic Moms in the month of January, you must have a husband named Adam. It's a new requirement. Okay. I'm going to read her bio. Anya is the lead digital education correspondent for NPR. Her team's blog is at npr.org backslash ed for education. Previously, she covered technology, innovation, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship for five years as a staff writer for Fast Company Magazine. She's contributed to The Village Voice, The New York Times, The Washington Post, New York Magazine, Slate, and Oh! The Oprah Magazine. She was named a 2010 Game Changer in Education by The Huffington Post and won 2009, 2010, and 2015 National Awards from the Education Writers Association. NPR Ed won a 2017 Edward R. Murrow Award for Innovation from the Radio Television Digital News Association. When I was in high school, you know, we'd have those award assemblies. And a girl in my class won the Smith College Book Award, which meant they waived your application fee and they gave you $1,000 at the bookstore. Another girl in my class won that, right? But then I got it in the mail. And so I went to my college guidance counselor and I said, hey, wait a minute. I won this award. Like, I should have gotten up on stage or I should have gotten the book. You know, Smith sent me this stuff. And my college guidance counselor, she said it was probably a mistake. (laughs) Anyway, I ended up going to Smith. So I don't know if it was a mistake or not. But in the yearbook, it says the other girl won the award. And um, my guidance counselor said it was a mistake that if, you know, that they sent it to me. It did have my name on it. Anyway, I feel like a fraud even in sharing this story, I'm going to own it. I won the Smith College Book Award. That's the one award I've won. I had to share that because I just read 20 awards that my guest has won. See, that's me trying to keep up. The Art of Screen Time. Okay, it's out today. Oh, yeah. Hot off the presses. Tuesday, January 30th, 2018. It is now available. It is the first essential don't panic guide to kids, parents, and screens. And since we're talking about screen time, join us on social media, on Instagram at Atomic Moms, Twitter at Atomic Moms, join our Facebook page and our private Facebook group. Okay, I'm going to shut up now. Our guest is really, really fun, and she's done so much work, and she brings us a lot of great information. I'll be right back with Anya Kamenitz to discuss all things screen time. Okay, Anya, thank you so much for coming on Atomic Moms Podcast. I want to start off by sharing a little thing you have in the introduction 
of your new book. You write, it's a book that I wish I had had when my firstborn daughter arrived, a clear, deeply researched, and non-judgmental take on an issue that faces nearly every parent today. I hope it will be a good resource for you as together we try to navigate the rocky shoals between fear and hype and untangle the growing role of digital media in our family lives and in our lives, period. I've got to say that, Anya, in your new book, The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life, you've done it. You did what you set out to do. So thank you. Thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. Um, I want to start off with screen time and our kids. And for listeners, we know that I go all over the path. There's a lot of off-roading that happens with this podcast. But (laughs) my intention is to... Start off by talking about our little ones and then the teenagers and then get into the mom stuff because a huge part of our podcast is about how we interact with our children and how we can support them in ways to make them the best they can possibly be. But a huge part of this podcast is focusing on the mom and our own, uh, let's say, inner drama. So the second half of this conversation will be about that. So to start off with the children, though, okay, let's talk about screen time and our kids. It used to be no screen time before age two. That's what they were all telling us. And in your book, you interviewed Dimitri Christakis, and he was a part of the American Academy of Pediatrics ruling on this. And in 2016, this ruling changed. So will you bring us up to speed? What do we do with our kids under two? Sorry, my daughter just walked in the room. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Lulu. What did you want to ask me? Yeah, take your time. Ooh, guys, everyone, listeners, this oh, is like... Oh, so sorry. No, no more. No the, more. No. I'm locking my door. This is a BBC. Birthday card for a friend. This is a BBC moment. <laughs> Total BBC moment. I'm Total so BBC moment. And so I'm not going to edit it out because it was perfect. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Of course. You handled it beautifully. Uh, um, all right. Yeah. Um, anyway, please let her know. She can interrupt as much as she like. It's no, a family no, no, podcast. No, 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 yeah, no. will take it over. Okay. So anyway, so the rules are revised. And um, what they're doing now is instead of strictly focusing on the um, the time frame and no nothing before age two, and then kind of unclear what you do after age two, they're focusing on how kids watch. And the most important message here is trying to avoid too much solo media use. And so whether your child is six months old and Skyping with grandma or 18 months old and using an an additional app or even um, an 11 or 12 year old who's into video games, you want to spend some of that time alongside them and kind of enjoying things with them and helping reflect with them on what it is that they're doing. Because um, the reason this is so important uh, is that we really want to be modeling how our kids use technology to model that creativity, the connection, the connectivity that we, we, you know, we have technology for a reason and it's to make our lives better. And it's not to hypnotize the kids and it's not to, you know, switch them off and plug them in, but we're trying to model, you know, using technology as a tool. And I mean, all the people that listen to this podcast, we know we are using media right now to connect and to learn and to make our lives better. And that's what we want our kids to do as well. Now, Anya, can you make Skype better for me? Because it's like so frustrating. (laughs) I want to go back to the little ones for a moment. And I want to just get the whole like wah, wah out of the way. Like what are the risks of having our kids in front of the screen? So 
I think probably the, the scariest top line is there's just so much that we just don't know. There's very little research on what it's actually doing to developing brains in particular. But what we do know that the clearest connections in the research, they have to do with sleep and they have to have to do with obesity. So the sleep research, I think, is probably the biggest. That was a huge like siren for me. I just was not aware of it before. And it's really changed how I think about screens. But the light, the blue light coming into people's eyes and shining on their faces, especially at night, it really disrupts bedtime. It disrupts the quality of sleep. And we know how important sleep is, especially in the first year, first couple of years for kids. You know, but even when they're still napping, and I see a lot of kids who might be difficult to manage and they get a little screen time in the afternoon and they give up the, the nap a little more quickly. Um, and this, that kind of a, a, a warning pattern of behavior where you see it may seem like it calms them down, but it actually leads to more disruptive behaviors on the road. So the sleep, the obesity, that's something we've been studying, you know, going back to uh, television for decades and decades. Uh, and then there's like more speculative things, things around behavior, uh, ADHD, language delays, um, other kinds of uh, patterns, uh, issues, interactions with um, autism spectrum disorder. Those are all issues where the effects are real, but they're very small. And so what researchers believe is that there are a few people in the population who might be really sensitive and other kids are probably doing just fine. And so it becomes a lot harder then to make that distinction, but you really have to watch your kid because you know your own kid best. And so it's best to know about the risk factors and just keep a watchful eye out and see, hmm, like whatever issue that they're having, it seems to be getting worse when they are totally, you know, when it was snowing last week and they were watching TV eight hours a day, it was worse somehow. So watching out for that. You've got this great metaphor in the book of dandelions versus orchids and Mm -hmm. the idea that an orchid child might have... uh, They're more sensitive, and so they would have a harder time with some of the extra screen time in a way that a dandelion child, you know, it wouldn't really phase them. And I've noticed that (laughs) about myself. I think I'm a little bit of an orchid, Anya. Um, (laughs) If I Mm -hmm. spend too much time, let's say, editing a video or, well, let's just face it, when I was on bed rest with this pregnancy and I was watching so much Bravo, I turned into a real witch. Right. And so I'm oh, a little bit sure. of an orchid. And so it's just annoying because it means that we really do have to uh, take it on a case by case basis with our children. Mm-hmm. And that I think we're all looking for these just like blanket statements of like, well, this is the right way or this is the wrong way. And instead, it's really up to us as parents to determine, you know, what kind of child do we have and how can we help them best? I really appreciate all of the research you share in your book. And I want to, this one kind of blew my mind because we talk a lot about how my four-year-old Sabrina loves fantasy play. And you share uh, a little bit of child psychologist Bruno Bettelman's work. And you write, Mm -hmm. um, I'll read it, They're in those wonderful and terrifying phases of imagination and identity formation. They're forming, naming, and grappling with strong emotions, developing social awareness, and spinning fantasies of power and control in a world where they remain small and weak. And uh, I thought that was so beautiful. And, you know, my daughter loves playing like she's a villain all the time. (laughs) And and it, 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 when you, when I read, you know, that they are small and weak. Like she 
she really puffs herself up. And when she's yeah. playing and she pretends like she's all powerful, but just reading those words, it just softened my heart a little bit because I was like, oh, yeah, like she is aware that she's small and weak. And um, mm-hmm. and what a precious time this is for our kids. And And then I felt a little bad about, you know, showing her movies and TV shows and stuff because she does a lot of role playing. And I was like, oh, I kind of wish there was this alternate universe just for a day where I could watch her play without her knowing about these other characters. Like what would have she come up with uh, completely Mm -hmm. on her own? Did you find that with your own daughter, like the role playing and versus like what would be coming from their own imagination? It is so interesting, right? Because this was an area where I kind of, I I had to push back on the researchers a little bit. I talked to the researchers who were looking at kids playing the 80s and I was an 80s kid and I totally watched all of the terrible cartoons and and acted all of them all out and, um, you know, Ghostbusters and He-Man and Tira and, (laughs) you know, one after the other. And, and, you know, and the commercialization of children's imagination, which is, it is something that's a little troubling at the same time, I think we have to give our kids some credit. Like we, there's always this back and forth, like stories, people, kids have always had stories. They've always had archetypes and they've always related to them. And, you know, imagination is something that you cook up, not totally on your own, but it was a little bit of give and take. And so the question is, you know, can you give kids enough, whether it's books, or movies or, you know, or toys or a combination of all three where there's food for their imagination, but there's also a way to kind of breathe, let it breathe and let it grow into something on its own. And so for my kids, you know, I wasn't a purist with my older daughter and I let her have the Disney movies like on its own time. And the way that it worked out for us was, you know, we had screens one day a week. And so by having them confined to that one day, it helped us create a good rhythm where the rest of the week, if she was really excited about a story, she would be acting it out. And then, you know, you naturally do your own variations on the story. The more that you do the play, it's not, it's not like they're reading out from a script. It, it, it takes it. And, and so, you know, I think that there's, there's a range of reactions that you can have to that. I just started laughing when you said that about there isn't a script because my four-year-old, <laughs> there is a script. I, I, I don't know if there are other listeners out there oh, with really? a daughter my, with, who has, if you have a kid who's four, I'm curious if you also are experiencing this where when you play with your child, Sabrina will feed me lines. Like she will say, <laughs> and now you say this. <laughs> I'm like. Right, but is it, well, so she's. She's writing the script. Right? Oh yeah, right, exactly. There's a script. It's yeah, definitely Sabrina's. Right <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, I think that's very characteristic of a kid that age. And yeah. I remember Lily doing it too. Yeah, it's like it's 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 there being the directors of the oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, <laughs> she's a Virgo. Anyway, <laughs> so I, I also want to brag for a minute that we just had the head writer of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood on the podcast, Becky Friedman. Oh my god. And oh, yeah, me too. And now she lives down the street. She just left Brooklyn, by the way. So you lost her and I gained her um, Uh. because she's in L.A. now and she's our age and she's amazing. Anyway, so I loved what you said in the book about educational television because this is so important, like Sesame Street and Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. I mean, I really should just write a check to PBS right now. They are (laughs) benefiting our children. And I want to say 
that, okay, so with Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, the focus is on like empathy and how to deal with feelings. And you point out in the book that it's really important for parents to have a dialogue with their kid about what they watched. But also like how wonderful the kids can see something where people are talking about their feelings because a lot of children are in families where this sort of conflict resolution is not modeled. And so how amazing that kids can have that opportunity and watch something that, you know, really models it for them. Because I know I grew up in a home, God bless both my parents, but like there there wasn't any conflict resolution and nobody talked about how mad they were. Or if they did it, they said it, you know, it would not be on PBS. So um, <laughs> I just want to like, it's that's guilt-free watching, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if we grant media the power that it can be dangerous, we also have to recognize that it can be really good. And we want to be able to have that balanced relationship. And I mean, it underscores the point that, you know, content matters. It matters that there be, a, you know, an ongoing dialogue as well between the parents and the kids about what they're watching. And, and to do that, you do have to know a little bit of what they're watching. So, I mean, I would never say, I never feel totally guilt-free about, about TV. Um, and that's just probably, you know, I wrote this whole book, but I still can't get rid of it. But I think that <laughs> the point is, it's part of your balanced diet and, and a show that is bringing home a message that you want to reinforce, you know, show them the show, definitely show them the show, talk about it before, talk about it after, you know, I know when we were potty training, we had a lot of videos that we used and, mm-hmm. and, you know, whatever, whatever the behavior is, they're trying to reinforce the media is out there. And I think that it should be a tool in every parent's toolbox. Okay. Will you talk to us about blurring the lines, as you say, between screen and the living room? Because that's a way of using media as a part of our parenting toolbox. Yeah, sure. So that's coming up in so many different ways. I mean, I think a lot of parents, do you have a home speaker like an Alexa? No. We don't have one yet either, but my friend or my daughter's best friend does. And this is sort of one of the beginnings of where the screen time is moving back into the shared space. So instead of looking up on your phone, you're asking the, the speaker, you know, about the weather or about, you know, uh, you know, any, any question that really mm-hmm. the kid has in their minds is they're able to like ask it. And then this robot answers for them. And so the shared space is so interesting. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do it though. Like for my daughter, it was yoga videos where, you know, you roll out the mat and there's a little um, person on YouTube telling a yoga story and we're doing it together. And so the screen is there, but it's screen, it screens on the side, you know, it screens on the side play. And then, What's really important is like what's going on between you. Yeah. I I recently did it with Sabrina where she's obsessed with musicals, which I'm so excited about because I'm obsessed with musicals. And um, she wanted to watch the uh, Tony Awards, like the segments on YouTube. Uh, So we were able to pull up um, It's a Hard Knock Life. from the Tony Awards from Annie and she watched it a bunch of times. We also were able to pull up a video of Matilda, the musical. And then she would the rest of the week do what, you know, she would remember the choreography and stuff and do it in our kitchen. And so like, I thought that was so cool. Like it was the first time we had used it as really as a resource. So now I'm curious about 
okay, this is an argument between me and my husband. Well, it's, it's like the brewing of one, right? Where he <laughs> got some stupid – I can't mask my feelings ever. He got like this video game console thing, right? To me, it looks like a Game Boy. I'm sure it's got some important – it's some Nintendo, some sort of handheld device, right? And it like bugs me so much. That he plays it, although he has every right to play it at night, but like really, it makes me like really angry. Like for some reason, if he was watching the news or reading the Kindle, like I'd be okay with it, but I'm really controlling about like mm-hmm. his time apparently because I'm like, I, it feels disrespectful to me that he's playing a video game when there's stuff in the house that could be done. Um, but that's that's my own issues. Ugh. And now I feel bad that I even shared it. But he was, I was saying flat out, like. No, I'm totally with you. Okay. I'm totally with you. I just have to say, like, I, and, and I should not out myself this way because I am not against video games in theory. I talk right. to a lot of gamers, game designers, but I viscerally feel the same way as you, that it's like the worst waste of time on the planet. And why is that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And like, it's, it's, he has, it's his right. He worked all day. Like, it's his right. But yeah. anyway, I did say. Our daughter, our four-year-old, is not playing video games. Like, you're not going to start introducing her to this right now. Mm. And you share child psychiatrist Victoria Dunkley's work. You quote her saying that they've done brain scans of a child playing a video game, and the amount of dopamine released in the brain is similar to what's seen with cocaine use. Also, that the interactive screen time overstimulates the two signaling systems in the brain, the stress cortisol response and the reward dopamine response. And now my daughter is a little bit of an orchid, and I just, like, at four, I don't think she needs it. But what are, what are your thoughts on interactive screen time? Like, when is it appropriate? When is it helpful for children? And when do I tell my husband he just needs to bond with her in, in another way? Okay, so this is probably the biggest controversy right now. Oh, good. Uh, because, yeah, because, you know, scientists are split over Drama. whether we should call video game use addiction or not. And especially with younger people, um, they don't use the term addiction. It's not, you know, it's, it's something for study, but they talk about problematic use. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, like, is it a true behavioral addiction or is it something that's related to other psychological issues, um, brain issues? And, and Dr. Dunkley, you know, I, I, I interviewed her and I respect her work, but she's definitely a, a, a way outlier when it comes to thinking about, you know, how dangerous this stuff can be. And, you know, her work is with children who have very severe problems, children who have, you know, multiple diagnoses and psychiatric problems, traumatic past. So, you know, all of that said, uh, there are, you know, there are signs and the signs have to do with your child's relationship to video games. So you can't really tell before they've tried them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, if you have a kid who's very hard to calm and is kind of on the far end when it comes to, you know, having problematic behavior or opposing you or dealing with their emotions, yeah, I would be cautious about introducing them uh, to to something that might become their kind of one preferential activity. But at the same time, I don't think there's, honestly, I would, I would come down on your, on your husband's side in this situation because, you know, he has something that he likes and he wants to introduce it to her. He's not forcing her to become a part of it. And odds are, and this is really, I mean, this is a stereotype, but it's also speaking to the literature. The rate of problematic use of video games by girls is so much lower. Um, and so... Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, when you come, when you talk about problematic computer use with girls, nine times out of 10, you know, it's teens and it's social media. But the video game situation, the, the clinicians I talk to, it's boys who have a problem. Um, okay. And so, whether that's 
Anya, I'm not going to let my husband listen to this episode now. because you fall on the deathly side of things like my I'm all about making up the rules that that matter for your family like I just feel like a four but although she does enjoy some of the interactive screen time stuff of like the app stuff okay so now I want to shift gears and go to mom land okay you're the mom on the playground Mm -hmm. and you're checking your phone and you share an example in the book of you doing just that I've done it a million times I sense the judgment from others. It's, it could be imagined. But I kind of just want to shout out, like, I've got to respond to this email. Like, people expect me to respond to this email. And I've been with my daughter all day. So back off, you imaginary people that I think are judging me. <laughs> like, what's – talk to me about, like, just all of it. Talk to me about media and motherhood. I'm so happy that you brought this up because, to me, this is, like – the area that has not been talked about. And when we talk about families and screens, we have to talk about what we're doing with our phones. And so, you know, my number one thrust here is that, you know, motherhood is this time, it's similar to adolescence in that there's so much insecurity and it manifests in judgment. You know, you're displacing it onto what you think other people are doing. And we have to keep in mind, we're only 10 years into this smartphone era. Nobody knows the rules. Our parents don't know what to tell us. The doctors don't know the real answers. And so casting judgment on other families for what you think that they're doing, you know, it's, it's a spiral and it's really easy to get into. But the reality is we have to work out for ourselves what we think the phones are doing. These things, these supercomputers in our pockets, they were designed by geniuses to make us use them all the time. That was the point. Time on device. That's how they make money. So uh, figuring out how to split between that and, you know, your most primal urges, which are to take care of and to, and to um, you know, love up on your child, which every mother has, every parent has, um, it's really tricky. And we're all navigating it every day imperfectly. I'm totally imperfect. Um, but I want to call it out and say we can support each other. We don't have to judge each other. And we can share our strategies and things that work for us. A big problem I have is I'll get an email or I'll get a text and I'll feel like I'm I'm supposed to respond in a timely manner, but I don't want to because I want to focus on my kid or I'm doing other stuff. And I'm sort of like, why are you in my kitchen right now? Like, get out of here. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. But these days, it feels like you're supposed to respond in a timely manner. And like, is there a strategy for me where I can politely say, like, I'll get back to this at 8 o'clock once the kids are down without it feeling like I'm a sanctimommy or without seeming unprofessional or – you know, even if it's a friend texting and I don't want to respond until that evening to say that I'm really busy right now, that feels like a jerky thing to say because they're busy too. Like what, what's yep. a way, yep. give me a buffer. Like <laughs> I need a buffer. <laughs> well, so, it, you know, it, it depends on the situation, right? There's different levels of buffer that you can do. I have turned off notifications on my phone except for text messages, because that's going to be my husband. My boss doesn't text me. Mm. And so I check my email on my time. And that is when my kid's not asking for my attention. It's when my kid is occupied. Now you can leave your phone in a different part of the house in certain times of day. You can charge it by the front door. Some people leave it downstairs when they're upstairs or vice versa. Uh, I think that works really well. And then, you know, there is such a thing as the automatic response, which I think works really well. If you're someone who's getting, you know, emails, work emails, 
all day long, you can definitely, you know, have a response that is automatic that says, hey, I saw your email and I'll get back to you really soon. Finally, you know, depending on who it is that's writing you, but a lot of the time, like, people will understand if you take two hours or four hours to respond to a text and they might even be relieved. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I have had the experience of sending an email and then someone responds right away. I'm like, hey, now I have to go to the next session. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, definitely. That's so funny and so true. And also though, I have found that I'm like, well, I have time to kill right now. I'd really like to check up on my friends. Like this is about um, yeah. and so then I'll like start a conversation, but then something will happen and I have to drop out. Yep. And yeah, yep. I, the problem is I just want it all on my time. Right. And I guess that's not a problem. I just have to figure out how to be polite about it. And especially, I think a lot of moms are trying to figure out the balance of like, how do we work from home? And so yep. like I have childcare help on Mondays and Fridays now, and I kind of want to just do all of my work responses on Monday and Friday. And I don't know if we'll see yep. if that's possible, but I don't know how to really write back like, hey, guys, I'm I'm available Monday or Friday because that's when I have someone else watching my kid. That's probably not practical, and I'll just do it in the evening. But I have found personally, again, because mm-hmm. I'm probably an orchid, that the texting stuff, it can be so supportive and incredibly helpful, especially if you need a question, you need advice from a friend in the moment. But at yep. the same time, it stirs up a lot of extra anxiety. Totally agree. And I mean, I think that there's, uh, you know, different balances work better for different people at different times. You know, with my older kid, she will get engrossed in a book that she's reading or doing her homework. And I'm I'm totally cool with the idea that she doesn't need my attention every second. And what I try to do, and this is a tip in the book as well, is I let her know what I'm doing. I'm like, hey, I'm going to text your friend's mom and find out, you know, what they said about the play date on Saturday. And then, then we'll know um, what we're going to do. And so the more that I'm letting her in on that conversation, the less it feels like this black mirror that's like just sucking away my attention from her. And the more it feels like, you know, another person that I'm talking to. That I love that because then it's also still in relation to your child. Or even if it was like I – I want my daughter to know that I'm reading, like, the newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, Sabrina, oh, I'm reading totally. the New York Times right now. Like, And I was thinking, I wonder if I should go back to more paper stuff while these kids are so young so that mm-hmm. even reading your book, I was on the Kindle. And I was like, oh, my little six-month-old is laying here and staring at me, stare at this screen. But if it was a book, then suddenly, I, you know, if it was a hard copy, <laughs> then it might feel uh, less weird. And with your – oh, man – Speaking of me staring at the Kindle reading your book, I was reading it while she's staring at me, and I was reading your, the still face study. Oh, so, so meta. Can, can you please? Yeah, I was really tripping out. Can you share the still face study so we can all freak out? And I'm going to tell you what my uh, solution was afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so Edward Tronick, um, University of Massachusetts, he's been doing these studies for decades, and basically. In the YouTube video, what you can see is, um, you know, typical mother-infant duo. They're making faces back and forth, giggling. And then the mother goes totally still, and she's not giving any facial expression, no reactions. And the baby keeps making bits for her attention, um, you know, trying, laughing, giggling, clapping, everything that he can figure out how to do. And when she still doesn't respond, he totally freaks out. He starts screaming, crying, red-faced stress hormones are skyrocketing in his body. And this is all from just a few minutes, not of yelling, not of scowling, but just of of a totally blank face. Um, And these experiments were initially done to look at the impact of maternal depression. 
because a mother who's not emotionally reactive might be someone who's, you know, who's depressed. But now they're kind of being looked at as everybody has seen this and most of us have been this person, you know, the person who's pushing the stroller, looking at the phone and their face is very strict or composed because they're just, their thoughts are elsewhere and the baby is trying to get their attention. Um, so we don't, you know, this is just a little kind of canary in the coal mine situation. We don't know where it's going and it's something for everybody to be aware of that, you know, maybe your situational awareness is not as good as you think it is and that you, you know, it's when it's babies in the, in the vicinity, you need to be paying as much attention as you can. I put uh, Eliza down next to a mirror so that she could stare at her own smiling face while I continued to read. And it solved the problem. And, Brilliant. And that Brilliant. was also Janet Lansbury. So you talk about her in the book. Yeah. And she, uh, another bragging moment, she came on Atomic Mom's podcast. Uh, she did an in-person interview when she was trying to figure out whether or not to start a podcast of her own. And we're so glad she did. And oh. I have to say that with my second child, you mentioned this as well, that there's not as much time for the second kid. And I have really been leaning on a lot of her methods and advice. And and it's been very comforting. And so for people who don't know Janet Lansbury, she is a big proponent of the Rye method. There's a lot of different rules and you can look it all up online and Janet Lansbury is a wonderful resource. But what I really, really love about it is this idea that um, my daughter can look up at this light and just be mesmerized, and I should leave her alone. Like, let her be mesmerized mm-hmm. by the light. That was an example she had used on our podcast. Or you mentioned a handheld mirror, or these little delights that can just captivate our infants that we don't have to be running around and be so fussy, fussy with them all the time, that they can yeah. have their own space and kind of let them follow through on their own agenda. So that was cool that while I continued to read, I put up this, like, mirror uh, and had her look Mm -hmm. at herself. But anyway, did you enjoy speaking with her? Oh, my God, I loved it. It was a huge thrill for me because I'd read the books and I just was like, this is the alternative. We don't – the problem – the whole – issue with distracted parenting or shaming the mom on the playground is we have this idea in our heads that the perfect mother is always available, always, you know, telling a story, singing a song, teaching a kid. And that's just kind of over. It's not reality. It's not over. It's not actually what our kids need. They don't need us on top of them every minute. Mm -hmm. They need to be developing their own internal capacity. And so this kind of mindful alternation of attention rather than feeling like you're being tugged. And this is why I say like, if I get a text, you know, well, if I get, I get, I get text messages sometimes, but if I get, you know, I have the notifications turned off on my phone because when I know that I'll have that ability or that moment while I'm with my kids to also check in and see what else I need to be doing. And because they have their own moments and they're, you know, they both have developed beautiful attention spans. And I, with you, like the younger one, way more so because he had that, you know, chance to do it. And it's a good thing. Uh, you know, you know, the perfect parent is not, first of all, doesn't exist. But the ideal is is really something that, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to be giving maximum effort all the time or you're like a bad mom. Definitely not. And, God, you know, we've we've talked about so much on this 
podcast together. But for listeners, there's so, so, so much more in Anya's book. Um, you talk about the future with digital media. You talk about, oh, oh, ooh, one thing I thought was so fascinating is this idea that when television is audible, I'm quoting you here, when television is audible in a home, even in the background, there's a 90% drop in the number of words per hour that adults address to babies and young children. And that was from uh, Dimitri Christakis's research. But isn't that crazy? That if I have the TV on in the background, which is so nice to have, you know, you feel so much less alone when, uh, you know, Kate Baldwin is talking on CNN yeah. or something. But like... <laughs> Like, that that makes me shut up. And then I'm not as interactive with my kid. Because when it is quiet, I I just, it's like I'm on the podcast all day long, guys. Poor Eliza has to sit there and listen to me. But she'll probably have great <laughs> verbal skills. So thank you for sharing those kinds of little tidbits. Uh, in closing, is there one thing that just like blew your mind? Like when you were like, when you were delving into all this research, like one thing like that where you're like, oh, whoa, I never would have thought um, that that could make such a huge impact in your daily life as a parent? I mean, I think probably going back to us as parents, the notion that, um, you know, we talk all the time about screen time as kids, but parents spend like 11 hours a day with screens, um, you know, both inside with work and outside of work. And so screen time might be the wrong frame for thinking about these things. But I think that, that, you know, the living in a world where media is so ubiquitous, we better figure out how to be uh, on top of that. And I, I have a lot of faith in parents. You know, the reason I wanted to write for parents is because I think that we have the handle on this stuff in the sense that we have the morals and the ethical values, the grounding. We're all trying to act in the best interest of our kids. And if we're going to have a future of better tech, tech that's not stealing our attention and not, not, you know, weaving it away from what we most want to be doing. I think it's parents that are going to to make the call and lead the call for that. And so that's that's really what I hope for with this book, to be honest. Well, thank you so much, Anya. Thank you for delving in so deeply and also uh, metabolizing the information. That sounded gross. Like <laughs> putting <laughs> together this information in a way that it makes it so much easier for the rest of us. You've gone into the studies and you figured out what they're actually saying instead of just this like what you call mom bait or this basically click bait for mothers where people are constantly taking the research out of context and they are tweaking it so that we freak out in the middle of the night when we click that link and you're able to sort of go into it and figure out what the research is actually saying and share it with us in a way that is not clickbait. So thank you for that uh, as well. Thank you so much, Ellie. Next week, we have Britta Bushnell as our guest. We're talking about the transformation of motherhood, the transformational powers of it. It's so, so good. If you liked our episode with bestselling author and psychotherapist Dr. Barry Michaels, this is so going to be your jam. We're talking about the light and the dark and the gooey parts of motherhood. Who are we now? What is this crazy-ass rite of passage? And we get into mythology. Ooh, I'm excited for y'all to hear it. Okay, that's next week on Atomic Moms. And until then, trust in your goodness. Live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Mm-hmm.